0: Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources. For today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools, at www.nakubo.org.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and I'm so pleased to be joined today by Fred Rogers, Vice President and Treasurer at Carleton College. Hi, Fred. Hello. Good morning. Today, we're going to dive into campus energy efficiency and your contention that sustainability is a financial decision. So I wonder if you could start off today by sharing the history of sustainability as an initiative at Carleton. Why did it arise and how has it evolved?
0: You know, I think... uh... Sustainability in the sense of being smart and efficient has been a part of the college for a long time. But more formally in the language of environmental sustainability, uh, it came out of academic programs that started in the 70s and then really became formalized in the beginning of the 2000 decade by a group of students and faculty that eventually got the board of trustees to pass a statement that said, you know, Carleton takes responsibility for being responsible and addressing climate issues and trying to be a sustainable example.
1: And maybe you could give us a little bit of background about Carleton, about those who aren't quite familiar with what size of campus. Tell, just tell us a little bit about the school so we can get some perspective here.
0: Yeah, we're a small college. We're a residential liberal arts college. Uh, essentially, all of our students live in college housing, and um, we're about 2,000 students. Uh, so it's a small community. But it's a very intense, uh, interactive community.
1: And sounds like a progressive one, too, as it relates to sustainability.
0: I would say so. I would say our students have been engaged in this work for a long time. We've had a very strong science, technology, and public policy program that goes back, as I said, to the 70s and uh, has really been the foundation on which a lot of this work has been built.
1: Well, that's fantastic because now you have lots of great information to share with those uh, those that may maybe not quite at the same level that you are. So let's talk about some of those things. Can you tell me about the climate action plans for Carleton? What activities did you undertake that you found were successful?
0: Yeah, so the climate action plan came out of our being a signatory to the American College and University President's Climate Commitment. And that commits us to becoming uh, carbon neutral, and uh, the date that the college adopted, which was the default date of 2050, uh, seems like a very long way out. Uh, And that then involves developing a detailed plan for that, which we did and submitted in 2011, went through our board of trustees. It's actually on our website, the Climate Action Plan. And it involves activities that we are undertaking to reduce our use of electricity and fossil fuels, We uh, built a a large industrial-scale wind turbine that's been very effective. It produces now over 25% of all the electricity for the campus. So that's coming from wind power. We had a previous wind turbine that was not directly connected to the campus, but which generates power, and we're paid by the utility for that. And it's generating the equivalent. So you could say we're generating half of our electricity uh, from wind uh, right now. Um, And then we have other activities in terms of small things, ongoing energy upgrades, data metering and really understanding the campus and larger activities focused on an eventual plan to replace our entire heating plant and central heating distribution system.
1: Wow. So maybe you could dig into some of those investments that you've used for these projects. Can you tell us a little bit about is, what are some of the what were some of the first things that you did? Kind of the low hanging fruit.
0: Yeah, we've kind of developed this hierarchy of projects, as you alluded to, about things that uh, low hanging fruit is things that wow, we should just do that, and it has a very short payback. We replaced all the lighting in the library. We replaced the lighting in our largest dining hall and in the swimming pool, and uh, putting in LED lighting. Some of those pay some of those projects have like a two or a three year payback, um, uh, and so. You know, they're very high um, return and high value. And in some cases, we've been able to do them where we also have a maintenance component where the lighting control systems fail. So we just did the chapel this last year where we had a lighting control system to create all kinds of various levels of lighting in the chapel. That system was failing. And in replacing it, we also put in all LED lighting and much improve the efficiency of the lighting in the in the space.
1: Anything else that falls under that low-hanging fruit other than lighting?
0: We've done some things in the uh, building automation system uh, where we, for example, we schedule all of our large meeting rooms and spaces around their occupancy. So we have a central scheduling function that you can go on and reserve a meeting room or a conference room or a larger space. And that schedule is then used by the HVAC system to actually schedule when the heat goes from background up to full occupancy heating levels or air conditioning in the summer. So uh, we've had people complain where they'll go into a room that's empty when it's unscheduled and they say, wow, it's chilly in here. And we're like, that's right. It should be because it wasn't scheduled to be used.
1: What what other types of projects? You said there was kind of a hierarchy. So that's the low-hanging fruit. What's next?
0: Well, the next thing that our listing was what we called uh, feel-good projects. So these are projects that kind of help everybody see and understand what we're doing, but they may not have the biggest payback. Uh, we put in an electrical vehicle charging station two years ago. We had a movement about that. We had a couple of faculty who were very interested in buying electric vehicles. As it turns out, I think there's only one of the faculty members who actually went ahead and bought their electric vehicle. I oh, know. And, and so we don't have a lot of usage on it. Mm-hmm. But it's good to have it there. And, you know, it's right in one of our parking areas. We set it up so that if we ever had enough demand, we could put in a second one. But there's only one today. Um, so, you know, that's a good thing to do. It's on a statewide network. So if you're driving across Minnesota and, uh, looking for a charging station on the, on the sort of general network for the state, you'll find us listed. And it's available to people. It has a standard card for payment that anybody can use who uses an electric vehicle. But, you know, it wasn't a huge payback. We also had a project where we had a donor who was very interested in, uh, in energy cons- energy sustainability, and so we use some of that gift to put solar panels on the roof of a dormitory. You know we put a nine kilowatt system up there for p v we also put a thermal solar system up there for heating the domestic hot water in the dormitory. Hmm. Um, they work pretty well the nine kilowatt system is very small in terms of our overall usage. It is about a seven hundred dollars a year electricity savings for us, and the thermal system works great, except that it generates the most domestic hot water in the summer when the dorm is the least occupied. So <laughs> and it's kind of hard to store that. So, so those are great projects, but they're not um, super, uh, you know, payback. The other one I would say, which is a kind of a different example, was our first wind turbine. As I said, it went up on the grid, so it wasn't connected to the campus. Um, it's got a marginal, I would say, economic return as well, but It really was so motivational Mm. that our second turbine we actually received as a gift. Wow. Someone gave us over $2 million to put up this wind turbine uh, because they felt strongly that we should do that. And I think that was clearly in part motivated by the first turbine. And so, you know, if you take a whole view of the thing, you'd say the first turbine had a terrific payoff.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And it sounds like some of these projects are really kind of communication tools because they're so visible.
0: They are. They are, and the students have done gardens and other things, you know, uh, around campus to kind of again demonstrate sustainability in the food system. Um, so these are things that engage people, that they're visible, and I think help raise awareness.
1: Great. Now, what's the next level? Now, now we get into the serious stuff, right?
0: Yeah. So the next level we call getting ready projects. So these are projects that we have to do before we can do the next project. So. Mm. Metering and energy data systems and just really understanding our management practice and impacts are part of this project. So we did not have building submeters on the campus, and I would say most small campuses don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if you just have one utility meter at the front of the campus and you're measuring all of your electricity or all of your gas at one place – you don't really understand the distribution of how that's being used and where your maybe your hotspots are across campus. Mm-hmm. And so we have gone f- forward with a metering system that now we've got every building metered. Our newest dormitories are metered by floor. And so it really enables us to manage this in a much more articulate way. And then we had to build a database behind that so that that data is all automatically compiled and organized and accessible in various graphic and numerical ways so that we can use it for scheduling maintenance, for understanding our our uh, project evaluations as we do projects, uh, and really helping us manage our, our investments in the campus going forward. So we have ways in which we've put it up on the website and we've tried to make it so that people can see what's happening on campus. So again, it goes into this, there it is for us, but it's also motivational and informational for students. And we've made it available to faculty and students for projects and classwork and various comps kinds of projects so that people have analyzed this data and done things with it that's interesting and helpful for them academically as well. We've done energy audits and uh, and retro commissioning where we take a specific building and really examine how that building is performing. So once we have metering and we go back and look at the building was supposed to perform like this, how is it performing? Not all buildings are recommissioned after they're built, but we find that to be a very helpful practice as well. So all of that gives us a much better understanding of where we're going to spend money and things we're going to do um, going forward.
1: And then what's that next level? So you said you've got getting ready projects and getting ready for what?
0: So then the the two levels of investments that we're making, one of them we call energy enhanced maintenance projects. So I said, well, we're doing maintenance work and we're going to overlay that with an additional investment really targeted at reducing energy consumption and, um, you know, improving the performance of the building. So lighting control systems is a big area for that. Heating control systems. We had, you know, a number of our buildings were originally steam heat. So the steam heat had, you know, very limited controls and uh, single radiators, no thermostats uh, in each space. So we've gone back and we've replaced those in all of our dormitories now where we have thermostatic controls, where we have hot water heat, um, where we have better ability to control the heat in the public spaces and the heat in the private spaces. Um, We've got um, energy maintenance systems, uh, not only about lighting in terms of light bulbs, but also all the ballast systems, things that are not new to people, but things that we've really tried to put in across the campus. We also have kind of gone to a standard on occupancy sensors. So most public spaces now, when we've done anything to the lighting, they end up with an occupancy sensor switching system so that if the room is vacant, eventually the lights go off automatically Mm. and we're not requiring somebody to have turned them off. So, you know, those are kind of a series of things in addition to the general work on the mechanical systems, uh, steam traps, and making sure all of our heat exchangers are working properly and that the, the building, as I say, is basically performing the way it should. So an energy investment in maintenance. And then the last thing is really the larger ongoing retrofit or renewal system projects where we're putting in new systems and upgrading our systems. So we've done some experimental technology. We put in some chilled beam uh, air conditioning systems in some classrooms where we didn't have to put in a uh, heat exchanger and bring in chilled water in the in the larger uh, air system, but we just run it directly through these chilled beam systems. And uh, they're much lower operating cost, they're quiet, uh, and they air-condition the space in a more efficient way, we think. Um, So we're exploring new technologies. And as I said, we're working on a larger – the largest system of all is our – what we call our utility master plan, which is designed to take our now 100-year-old central, originally coal-fired, now gas-fired steam system that heats the entire campus and replace that with a zone district geothermal ground source heat system, combined heat and power system, and lower temperature boilers for supplemental and backup. And so we're calling this a hybrid system because it'll have different operating temperatures, it'll have different sources of heat, and it'll operate in a scalable way depending on where we are in the annual cycle. Minnesota goes from 100 degrees in the summertime to minus 20 degrees in the wintertime. So we have a pretty large temperature swing and we need a lot of variability in our building systems to accommodate that at various times in the year.
1: For every business officer that's listening right now, here's the big question. What are the trade-offs, cost and benefit for these approaches? What have you learned over your time at Carleton and all of the amazing work that you've done? Talk a little bit about cost and benefit.
0: You know, when we started doing this work, I told the students who were very passionate about it that we were going to do cost benefit analyses on any particular projects that we and they proposed, and uh, early on, they told me that I was therefore a non believer and that this was you know, <laughs> some kind of um, you know spiritual thing that if we didn 't just do it, it was wrong uh-huh. and it didn 't matter that we were saving money or not, but I think we 've gotten people convinced that it really is appropriate to do a cost-benefit analysis on every one of these projects. And we try to do that, but we try to make sure we're doing that in a holistic way. So we look at the costs and benefits of operation on today's prices. We try to do some projection about energy prices going forward. And, of course, there in some ways we weren't very good at that because who would have predicted that energy prices would be as low as they are today? Right. Uh, so that's been a little bit of a change. We also look at maintenance costs. So some of these systems are lower maintenance. As I said, you know, when we put in LED lights, they're much lower maintenance and much lower, longer replacement cycles than even traditional fluorescent lights. What's the replacement cycle on an LED light? If the light bulbs last, you know, 10 years or seven years instead of three years, then that's a longer time in terms of when we have to go back and replace them. And as well as they're more efficient as they operate. You know, we're looking at our steam system. And uh, one of the things with a steam system is we're required to have a 24-hour staffed boiler house because of the high-pressure steam system. But if we had a lower-temperature hot water system, that could be um, operated without full-time staffing. We also, in today's world, you can buy very efficient small package boilers and actually put them in different buildings. And so the central system really doesn't make as much sense as it did 100 years ago. I like to say the central steam system really was sensible because of the fuel source. If you're getting coal by a rail car, it doesn't make sense to try to do that in 20 buildings. But if you've got gas that you're piping around and you're running 90% efficient boilers, it really doesn't make sense to do that in one place because you're going to lose a lot of heat trying to ship that all around the campus as heat. And you can ship the gas around much more efficiently. Sure.
1: So everything you you consider undertaking, you're doing a cost-benefit analysis. And is that just you? Is there a committee that looks at this? I mean, how does that work at Carleton?
0: Yeah, we hired a number of years ago. We created a position called the Campus Energy Manager. And this is a person who is – she's got an engineering degree. She came to us from an architectural engineering company. She's done a lot of work on building systems. Uh, HVAC systems, and really brings a very serious perspective to, you know, her budget is the energy budget. So she has the multi-million dollar budget for all the utilities that we purchase, mm. but she is then the person advising all the maintenance staff about how we ought to really focus and use this data, how to evaluate it, how to think about trade-offs in the various building systems that we've got. And our, our mechanics have really bought into this. So the good news is they're interested in it as well. And together they've really brought everybody's, I think, awareness and understanding up and ability to really be collectively creative about how we look at our choices and things going forward.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought the maintenance issue up because how does that budget figure into this energy budget, if you will?
0: Yeah, as I say, we try to view them as a, you know, they're they're cooperative. They're always working together. Mm-hmm. And so when we have maintenance money to replace uh, roofs that leak – We also go in and re-insulate the roof. So we'll put in insulation as a part of a roof replacement. When we're doing windows and repairing or replacing windows, we end up with much higher energy efficient windows. Um, When we're looking at building mechanical systems, we're going to put, as I said, we're going to look at alternatives. Like we put this chilled beam system in instead of putting another VAV box and, and a bigger air system into that building. So... You know, we're constantly trying to pair these two together. Um, An area I didn't talk about, but I should have mentioned, is waste management. We got the custodians a number of years ago looking at why the um, trash budget was as big as it was. And one of the things that we probably knew but hadn't really focused on is our waste haulers charge us for every one of the containers that they pick up based on the number of times they pick it up. They don't charge us for how much is in the containers. They charge us for the fact that they picked up 57 containers. So we, first of all, we went around and reduced our number of containers significantly. We so said we don't need to have as many containers. And then we said, well, to make that work, we need to have a lot less trash. And so then we've worked on recycling and composting and just trying to buy things that are lower trash generating in the first place in terms of lower packaging for some of the things that we bring into the campus. And so we have reduced our trash volume considerably. And uh, we've also made believers out of all of the custodians now. So they're really actively out there in their buildings and with students and other people trying to help. No, that goes in the recycling. That doesn't go in the trash. No, mm. that goes here. And we have signs on all our waste bins. We actually standardized waste bins across campus so that recycling. And we don't call it trash anymore. We call it landfill. So oh. we, There's a little bit of a shaming thing going on there. You know, if you're putting it in there, it's going to go in a permanent landfill. Yeah. But if you put it here, it gets recycled or here it would get composted. And uh, the dining hall has gone to all their paper products are compostable now. So, uh, you know, we don't re- even recycle the paper. All the clamshells and the plates and the forks and spoons that are that are disposable are all compostable materials. Um, so we've really worked at getting the um, the waste stream significantly reduced and to be lower cost. And it sort of just becomes a part of the way we operate. So, you know, it's not like an, it's an exception anymore. It's like that's how everything is.
1: It seems like part of this, as we had talked about earlier, is sort of a communications issue in terms of particularly with the with the waste and the garbage, because that involves, as you mentioned, custodians, students, faculty, and a little bit of an education process. So can you talk about that, that aspect of it? And, and even with, with your local community, what sorts of things have you done to kind of get people on board with, with the, the initiatives that you've worked on?
0: We sort of practice at Carleton this notion that the community is broadly uh, engaging and collaborative. And so we try to have everybody feel that in some way they're a part of both helping us decide what to do and how to do it, given that we all have sort of agreement about our collective goals and mission. And uh, that seems to work well for us. So as I said, the custodians are very enthusiastic about this waste management system. Uh, We've been able to cut back. We now went from daily trash removal to twice-a-week trash removal. In all the offices. So, uh, and you know, we have people taking out their own recycling in between times. And, and so it's just a matter of everybody being sort of part of, this, of the system. We brought in a new trash hauler at the college because we wanted to renegotiate our contract. And our previous hauler, when we reduced our bins so much, wasn't cooperating the way we thought they should. Uh, that new trash hauler has been much more creative about how to help us all reduce and do better, even yet, at our recycling. And they were so good at that that the city actually liked that. And so the entire city of Northfield switched trash haulers to be using the same one that started serving the college. And I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have come down to our small town just for a single household. But they came down here to start with the college. And then that was enough to make it interesting for them to do households and blocks and eventually the rest of the city. So we've, I think we've been able to work together well. We have something called the Greater Northfield Sustainability Collaborative. So the colleges, there are two colleges in town, Carleton and St. Olaf, and the two colleges in the town are working together, faculty and students, and with some of the small businesses in town to try to develop sustainability standards and objectives for the whole community. This is around um, a community solar project. It's around building standards. It's around um, things that we can do with stormwater and wastewater management, this trash and recycling, as I said. So I think, you know, there's a there's a general reaching out of how our activities both engage and mirror the work in the town.
1: Well, you've done so much already, but I'm sure anybody who's involved with sustainability knows that it's sort of a never-ending process. So what's next for you at Carleton? What are you looking at right now as you project forward?
0: Yeah, well, I think our most exciting thing, as I said, is this idea of replacing our whole heating infrastructure. So we have this central steam plant system that even though we've put hot water converters in buildings, we're still generating 150 pounds steam and sending that around the campus. And our plan is to, by the end of the next five years, have completely replaced that with a system that all about half of the campus will be served by a ground source heat loop system. So we'll have large um, uh, heat exchangers in a new building that will be using a large well field to produce hot water that will serve five or six buildings in a district. So it's not single building, but it's, again, in a district heating system for one part of the campus. We're gonna put in a combined heat and power system, which is a gas-fired uh, electric generating uh, plant that'll generate electricity, and the heat from that will then be used to heat hot water to heat the campus. So it produces both electricity and heat, uh, and then converting the rest of our systems to be lower temperature water that will come from these systems really gives us the ability to, we think, scale and operate in a much, much more efficient way. I think our overall goal is on the order of a 50% reduction in our purchased fossil fuels. That's an ambitious goal for us. It's part of our climate action plan. I don't imagine that we'll ever, in the climate we're in, be free of having some energy input requirement. So we're going to have that but we're finding ways to reduce it and to make it as efficient as possible and to diversify our sources. So those are the big things that we have in mind and um you know we're we're excited about that. We think it's a great possibility. The board seems very excited about it. And uh, the payback for this will not be quick because there's so much investment in piping and pumping and changing the building systems. But you know we're talking about a 100-year heating plant that we've had now and I think on the scale of the next 100 years, we think this will be the right foundation for the college going forward.
1: Anything else I've neglected to ask you today that you'd like to share?
0: Well, one of the things I might have mentioned was the whole issue of new buildings and lead standards and, um, you know, how important that has been. And we've got three LEED gold buildings on the campus, but not all of our projects are certified. And uh, one of the things that we keep asking ourselves is what else do we have to learn from going through the process? And, um, you know, I don't think this is smugness, but many of the things in our very first league buildings have now become standard practice in the way we do even renovations on campus. So recycling uh, building materials when we do demolition, recycling all our furniture, um, using locally sourced products wherever possible, uh, using low VOC paints and low VOC carpeting, um, putting in very high energy efficient walls and windows. Uh, et cetera, building control systems that I mentioned earlier in terms of occupancy sensors and low flush toilets. So all of that has come in a sense from the motivation of looking at these new building standards through LEED, but now they become our practice and then we've written them into our standard building uh, standards that we give to contractors and architects when they're designing new or renovated work on the campus. So I think that's another area where we 're constantly moving the goal moves forward you know the lead the green building standards um, group has set new standards so that the lead standards today are higher and different than they were five or six years ago, and we 're going to look at those and see what else we should learn from that, but I think it's a it 's a constant as you say evolution of trying to take what you 're doing, make that the best of that standard practice, and then go to the next thing we should be doing and figure out how to move forward further with that
1: Any advice you would give people who are either just starting out with this process or haven't even touched it yet? What would, you, what would you say to them?
0: You know, every campus, and our campus was here, has things that have sort of been a constant source of difficulty, buildings that are difficult or building systems or places that are uncomfortable for people to occupy and use in some way. And we found that if you start where it matters most to your campus and try to think about these issues, you can begin to make an impact And you can also learn how to do this better. So the most important advice I would give to people is figure out what matters most to your campus and then begin. Do it. Do it significantly. Do it thoughtfully. And, you know, always try to evaluate that and learn from that. And then we'll do the next one better.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Fred, for sharing your wealth of knowledge on sustainability with us today.
0: It's great to talk with you. I'm excited about this. And I'm excited as I travel around and visit other campuses to see the wide variety of work that is underway and to know that everyone is thinking about this and working at it. And so I wish them all great uh, success because we collectively only have one planet to share so excellent
1: excellent ending point thanks fred you can find out more about today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org make sure you subscribe to nakubo in brief and itunes so you'll get the latest episodes instantly and on behalf of fred and myself i'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of nakubo in brief